take God's Word and turn with me to the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. Today we're going to begin a series of messages. The title of our series is Renewing Our Faith. And in this series, we're going to be going through the book of Malachi. And uh, a dictionary definition of the word renew might say something of this order. It might speak about being made new, restore freshness, life, or quality. When I hear those kinds of words, I think about going to the store and buying milk or bread. I want to be very careful that I look at the time stamp on that milk. You know, I don't want to buy milk that is out of date. Anybody had that experience where you purr at those curdles? Yes, no, that's not a good picture. So when we get the idea of renewing our faith, we're coming to a time in our lives where we are saying, Lord, I'm yours. I want to be fresh. I want to be that person that is on fire for you, that is up to date in my accounts with you. God, I want to be somebody that you can use. I want to be fresh. I want my life for Jesus to be representative of what it means to be a Christ follower. Now, when the Bible speaks of renewal, it speaks of it on a couple of different levels. We know for certain that it speaks about renewal, uh, renewing ourselves physically because we have bodies that are humanly frail. And because we, have humanly, uh, uh, we are, are frail as human beings, we need to renew ourselves physically, and we do that by resting. And it's so important that God, when he was speaking to his own people, he said, you know, you need to have a day for rest. I don't want you to work seven days a week. I want you to have a day that you set aside for rest. And physical renewal is important to us, but as important as physical renewal is to us, there's a second kind of renewal in the Bible that is also important, and that is spiritual renewal. And spiritual renewal, as we read about it in the Scripture, begins before uh, we come to know Jesus. Uh, spiritual renewal obviously indicates to us that there must be the Spirit of God in us to bring about that renewal. Scripture tells us before we come to know Jesus, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. I don't want to offend anybody this morning, but I want you to know that apart from Jesus Christ, you are without hope, without life. Once you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, what happens is the Spirit of God renews us and brings us back into a renewed relationship with God. We were alienated from God by our sin, but Jesus made it possible for us to renew our relationship with God. And that's what happens when we come to know Christ as our Savior and Lord. And the Holy Spirit is all involved in that. That's not something you or I can do on our own. In fact, the Scripture tells us that He saved us not by the works of righteousness that we had done, but according to His mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Now, we come to know Jesus, and we have the highest hopes of following Him and serving Him and glorifying Him, and we want to do that every moment of every day. That's our heart's desire. That's something that God plants inside of us when we come to know Jesus. We had an old sin nature. It just longed to do the things that pleased ourselves or pleased Satan or, or did damage to ourselves, but when we come to know Jesus, we have these new desires. And the new desire that God gives us is, I want to please God. I want to do the things that God wants. I understand that everything God wants for me are the things that I should want for myself. 
because they're good for me. And yet we all know that what? We don't do everything the way that God wants us to do. But the wonderful thing is that the Bible tells us that that work that began at the time of salvation is the work of the Holy Spirit. And according to Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, Jesus came in and the Holy Spirit's going to continue working on me and renewing me and remaking me and He won't stop until the time that I meet Jesus and then at that moment the work will be complete and I will be made into the likeness of Christ Himself. Now, Renewal is a continual process for us as believers. Because we sin, because we fall out of our faith relationship with God and don't live at the level we want to, we come to know Christ and the Bible tells us we receive the mind of Christ. And the Bible tells us that if we want to nurture that, the Holy Spirit has to continue to work in us. And the way the Holy Spirit works in us is by by the renewing of our minds. He transforms us by the renewal of our minds. This is why Jesus said in John 17, 17, uh, Thy word is truth. My word is truth. Father, I pray that you would sanctify them by the word. The way we renew our minds is through the word of God. It's not through reading a lot of pop culture about following a lot of things that are available out in the world, but by immersing ourselves in the Word of God, our minds are renewed. Furthermore, because we're prone to sin after salvation, it's important that this renewal becomes a constant practice in our lives. We need to focus our things not on the things on this earth, as Colossians says, but not on this world, but on the world to come. We're things that are above. Those are the kinds of things that we need to seek in our thoughts and our activities. Now, I'm excited that renewal is always available to me as a believer in Christ. When I sin, I can go to God and I can confess to Him and I can say, Lord Jesus, I realize I've gone off course. I agree with you about my sin. And Father, I ask you to forgive me. I turn from my sin and I return to you, Jesus. We know that when we ask for God for forgiveness, that sometimes in our spiritual life, we lose that joy of our salvation when sin begins to encroach on us. And so the Bible tells us that we can call out on the Lord and say, Lord, restore the joy of my salvation. Now, today's message is about renewing our faith in God's love. Renewing our faith in God's love. I don't know about you, but whenever I read a sentence like that or a statement like that, I, I look back on my own spiritual life, and even today, I don't typically think about me needing to renew my faith in God's love because I don't see that God ever moves or that He ever changes, that He's the same. And all of those things are true. In fact, when I start to think about a renewal and it has anything to do with love, I think about renewing my love for God, not doubting whether or not He loves me. But the fact of the matter is, is that in the book of Malachi, what we're going to find out is that these two are connected. In fact, we're going to see 
as God shows his love, reveals his love, continues to love his own people, the Israelites, what we're going to find out is we're going to find out that their love for God had grown cold. And the reason why their love for God had grown cold is because they lost their faith in God's love. We need to renew our faith in God's love. What happened was they began to doubt his love because their expectations were not met. Imagine that. We all have expectations. We all expect things will go a certain way. And when we talk to God about that, and we seek God about that, and we pray about that, and it doesn't go our way, we wonder, God, why didn't that happen? I thought I was doing everything you asked me to do. I was in the right place where I thought where I needed to be. I was pursuing you, I was praying, I was seeking you, but it didn't happen. Friends, I want to give you a little insight. Whenever we put ourselves in the foreground and God in the background, we're headed for trouble. The first step towards spiritual renewal is to keep the spotlight on God and self in the shadows. John Piper said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. In Malachi, the greatness of God is seen in His love for His people. And I want you to follow along with me as we begin reading in Malachi chapter 1, Verse 1, the word of the Lord. A pronouncement. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you ask, how have you loved us? Wasn't Esau's Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so. I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. Though Edom says, we have been devastated, but we will be rebuilt. The ruins, the Lord of armies says, this they may build, but I will demolish. They may be called a wicked country and the people the Lord has cursed forever. Your own eyes will see this, and you yourselves will say, The Lord is great, even beyond the borders of Israel. We drop down into the book of Malachi, and you have to um, know a little bit about how we got here to this place in the Scripture. There are two things I'm going to do today that will not be repeated in future messages. So bear with me. They take a little longer. I took a little longer runway to talk about spiritual renewal, okay? I'm not going to plow that ground over again, okay? That sets you up for what the series is about. And what I'm about to give you about the say in the book of Malachi, I'm not going to restate this again, okay? So I do want to let you know, though, the setting for the book 
of Malachi. And to do that, I want to go way back. I want to go back to 2000 BC. Now, don't worry about it. We're going to speed through about a thousand years of history real quickly. Around 2000 BC, and these are round numbers, not exact numbers. God appears, shows himself to Abraham, and Abraham worships the Lord, gets to know the Lord, serves the Lord, obeys God, and God makes a covenant with Abraham. And in this covenant is spoken about in Genesis chapter 15. And God says, Abraham, out of you, I'm going to raise up a nation to honor me in the world so that all the peoples of the world will come to know me through this people. This same covenant promise he makes with Abraham, he restates to Abraham's son Isaac and also to Jacob. Now, if you go ahead about 600 years to around 1400 B.C., now we find the people of Israel have formed into a group and they have gone down into the land of Egypt. They're down there in Egypt to sojourn for food to begin with, but eventually they become the slaves of the Egyptians. They grow in number, they become numerous, but what happens is they are there and they are, according to the law of Moses, they were to receive blessings for obedience to God and curses for disobedience to Him. And one of the curses that is given to Moses as God delivers His people from Egyptian bondage is that if you disobey me, you will not be able to reside in the promised land, but you'll be removed. Then around 1000 B.C., what happens is the people of God continue to grow and develop. They have a period of judges that lead the nation. And during this time of the judges, some of the judges lead the people to, uh, uh, the people follow the Lord for a while, then they disobey the Lord. And then what does God do? He punishes them and they come under the uh, punishment of another nation and then they cry out to the Lord and the judge is raised up and then God delivers them and brings them back into fellowship. This is repeated over and over and over again. Finally, the people just get to a point where they say, enough of the judges. What's the deal with the judges? We look around us, we see every nation around us has a king. God's saying, I'm your king. How, how are you going to top that? Well, all the nations around us have a king. We want a king. So God responds to their prayer and says, okay, I'll give you a king. And the nation of Israel unites under David, the king. Saul is the first king, then David follows Saul. And then the third king is Solomon. And Solomon comes along as a king, and David is faithful to the Lord. But Solomon begins to stray away from the Lord and he begins to marry foreign wives who do not embrace the faith of the Israelites and their God. And what happens is, is God begins to discipline his children, discipline his people. And when Solomon dies, there is chaos in Israel. There's division over who the next king should be. And a civil war breaks out. 
And what happens is, is 10 of the tribes break off and follow one leader, and two of the tribes follow another leader, and the 10 tribes are what is called Israel, and they're moved into what's called the northern kingdom, and their capital that they set up is Samaria. Samaria. The two tribes, the smaller number of people, are called Judah, and they set up their capital in the city of Jerusalem. Now what happens is, is over the next couple of hundred years, the people of Israel are led by a number of wicked kings who continue to stray away from God. They continue to intermarry with other peoples. And these are the Samar- this is the roots of the Samaritans that Jesus preaches about in the New Testament. And the Samaritans are those kinds of people who are punished because they are disobedient to the Lord. And when God has had it up to here, I mean, he has called them back to himself, called them back to himself. In 722 B.C., God raises up the Assyrians, and the Assyrians attack Israel, and they wipe out Israel. Uh, their capital, and they destroy them. In fact, they are so utterly destroyed that we speak about the ten lost tribes of Israel. Now, the southern kingdom is led off and on by some kings that remain faithful to God, or if they disobey, they repent, they return to the Lord, they listen to God's correction. And what happens is, is in This goes on for maybe 150 years longer than the Israel's faithfulness. But what happens is, eventually, Judah sins against the Lord to a degree that God says, you know, I love my people, but you keep persisting and turning away from me. And God says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get your attention. And it's prophesied that there's going to be 70 years of exile. The Israelites are going to be under captivity by another nation. This is God's way to correct them, to punish them. And so God sends the Babylonians. And the Babylonians attack Jerusalem. And in 587 B.C., what happens is Jerusalem falls to the Babylonians and they are taken captive. And many of their people, like Daniel that we read about in the Bible, are carried off to Babylon, the capital city of the Babylonians. Now, we're getting a little bit closer to the book. When we reach this point in Israel's history, because while the Babylonians are in power for a little while, God raises up another great nation that is a part of his plan to bring his people back to himself. He raises up the Persians. The Persian Empire overthrows the Babylonian Empire. And the Persians are led by a king who is not a believer, not one among the Jews, but he is kind toward the Jewish people. And the reason why he's kind toward the Jewish people is because God's made him that way. And God's going to use him to bring the people of Israel back to their homeland. In fact, King Cyrus agrees, I'm going to let you return to Jerusalem. And what happens is there are three different groups over a period of about 70 years that go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, to reinstitute temple worship there, 
to rebuild the city walls. The first group goes back. Zerubbabel is the leader of that group. Another leader goes back. It's Ezra. But after Zerubbabel and Ezra are there, word gets back to the capital city uh, in Babylon where the Persians are reigning now. It gets back to them that the city walls have not been rebuilt. Temple worship, the temple has not been rebuilt. It's not been restored yet. Nehemiah is brokenhearted. He falls on his knees before God. And then he waits for God to open a door for him to go and speak to the king of Persia about that. And he goes and he makes his appeal to King Cyrus. And Cyrus says, I'll let you go back. How long do you plan on staying? I mean, are you coming back? And Nehemiah says, I tell you what, you let me go back. See what's going on in that city. Help them get the job done, and I will return. So he goes back. He meets up with Ezra the priest. The word of God is discovered, opened up, and it is read to all the people. And the people repent when they hear God's word for the first time in years since they have heard God's word spoken. And there's a national revival going on in Jerusalem. But the walls are down. The temple's not been rebuilt. So they go to work. Nehemiah keeps his promise. Got to go back to Cyrus. He goes back to Babylon. And then after he has fulfilled his obligation to King Cyrus, he returns to the city of Jerusalem. And guess what happens when he returns? He finds out that the people have not remained faithful to the Lord. He finds that the work of God among the people of God has not been completed. And so in Nehemiah chapter 13, I just jot that reference down. In Nehemiah chapter 13, he begins to address all the reforms that need to take place among God's people. Now, the reason why I point your attention to Nehemiah chapter 13 is because, as you can tell now, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi are connected to each other in such a way that they are contemporaries of one another. Malachi brings his message to the people, and when you read the book of Malachi, if you will read Nehemiah chapter 13, you will find that all of the issues that God brings up and addresses in the book of Malachi are those issues that were raised in Nehemiah chapter 13. All right, everybody take a deep breath. (laughs) What's for lunch, pastor? Because we're not going to plow that ground again. That's it. And that brings you up to the point where we are when we open this reading. Malachi chapter 1 begins with this statement. This is a pronouncement. And the pronouncement is this. This is the word of the Lord. You know, in the book of Malachi, in the entire book, it won't take you long to read it. If you want to read the whole thing in one sitting, you can do it. There's only 55 verses in the four chapters of the book of Malachi. Here's what you will find out. Of the 55 verses in the book of Malachi, are you ready for this? 47 of them are God speaking. 47 of the 55 verses are God speaking. You talk about the word of the Lord. I mean, this is straight up. 
the word of the Lord. It's God speaking verse after verse after verse speaking to his people. Malachi, the name, actually means my messenger. Malachi is just the messenger boy. This is the word of the Lord. God speaking to his people. And the message is addressed to Israel. Well, who are these Israelites? Well, we already heard about the ten lost tribes of Israel. Primarily, what this is, is this is a remnant of what Israel was at one time. These are the covenant people of God that remain. And they're primarily from Judah and Benjamin and, and the tribe of Levi. And then they represent the remnant of Israel. And in his message to this group of people, he utilizes a fresh creative approach. And what is God's approach as he speaks to them? The book of Malachi is structured around six disputations. Six debates that God has with his people. And each disputation involves God making a statement, the people questioning God's statement, and then God proving his statement. So what we're going to see in the book of Malachi is a formula is repeated. Declaration, doubt, and demonstration or defense. Now this morning what I want us to do is I want us to look how God declares his love. He begins this message by reminding them, I have loved you. Now the word God used for love there is a common Hebrew word. It is a word that is used 32 times in the Old Testament. And usually when it is used, it is used as a reference to God's love specifically for his people Israel. Now God's love for his people therefore should not be breaking news it shouldn't be surprising this is said over and over throughout the old testament with which his people should be familiar but what happens here is that god brings up his love for them and we go back and we remember that the first reference to god's love for his people is found in deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 6 through 8 and this is what we read there this emphasizes god's love for israel and it emphasizes it's not based on who or what they are, but on God's sovereign choice. And this is what it says. For you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord had his heart set on you and chose you not because you were more numerous than all peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your fathers. This is why I chose you. Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 describes God's love for his people as that of a loving father. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So first of all, what we notice is this declaration, God's declaration of his love. Secondly, notice that the people doubt God's declaration. In response to God's declaration of love, the people say, How have you loved us? I don't know if that's the tone of voice, but it's kind of what comes through to me. What this is, is this is a complaint that they're making. They're protesting on the basis of injured innocence. 
How in the world did all these things happen to us? If you love us, how did all these things come to pass? They doubted God's love because of the hardships that they had encountered. They, times were hard. They claimed they had not been able to see evidence that God truly loved them. And at this time, Israel was not even an independent nation. They were still under the rule of the Persians. Now, what had happened was these Israelites who had returned to Jerusalem, they had expectations. Their expectation was, we're going to back, go back and we're going to restore our relationship with God through temple worship. And what's going to happen in our observance of temple worship is that we're going to prepare and usher in the time of the Messiah who's coming back. And he is going to reign over us and he is going to rule the earth and everybody will bow down and worship him. But it didn't happen that way. Their expectations went unmet. And here's what they did. They reasoned that either God cares for us, but he's not powerful enough to help us. Our God is super powerful, but he just doesn't care about us. And so on top of defeatism, there is this cynicism that reigns among these people. They doubted God's love because their expectations were unmet. Now stop popping your spiritual suspenders and looking so spiritual. At some point in our lives, there are going to be things that because we are God's children and we love Him, we expect things will go a certain way. And when it doesn't go the way that we think it ought to go, we begin to doubt. My dear friend David Landreth was pastor at Long Hollow for 17 years. He contracted a very rare form of cancer. God was moving and using David in remarkable ways. David would not take any credit for it, but he was a faithful preacher of the Word of God, just as many other preachers are. God's favor was on him. Many people were turning to faith in Christ. Church was growing not by tens or even by hundreds, but by thousands. People from all over the Southern Baptist Convention and beyond in Christendom on the mission fields were praying for his healing. But God didn't heal him. At age 50, God took David Landreth home, now 50 is not young. But it's not old either. There's lots of tread on the tires. Thousands of people who love the Lord wondered why didn't God answer our prayer? I mean, the rapist goes free to commit a crime again and again. And God's servant who's doing a world of good, who's helping people come to know Jesus, is taken home. What 
happened. So the people doubted God's declaration. But God defends his declaration. And he does so in verses 2 and 3. And he does so with this statement. I loved Jacob. But I hated Esau. Do we have some attorneys in here? We've got our work to do. One of the principles taught in law school is demonstration ends all debate. Demonstration ends all debate. Now, the earlier prophets, when they wanted to talk about God's love for his people, when they wanted to prove, when they wanted to demonstrate God loves us, you know what they would do? They would talk about things like, well, uh, God delivered Israel from Egypt. God led his people and provided the promised land for them. They would talk about the fact that God had done all these things for his people, that uh, If they would repent, he promised to restore them from exile. God had done all of those things. But in this instance, that's not the examples that God points to. Instead, in Malachi's day, the Lord used evidence that would impress the Jews of that time. Esau and Jacob were the twin sons of Isaac. Esau was born first. And so he became the rightful heir to the family inheritance as the oldest son inherited all the family property. He was the one who would receive the blessings of his father Isaac, that covenant relationship that God established with Abraham restated to Isaac. (laughs) But what happens is as the two boys grow, Esau is kind of one of those wild guys that loves to go out and hunt. And he's off on an Australian walkabout. Not really, but I mean, you get the idea. He's out and about, and he's gone for a long time. He's about to starve to death when he comes home. Isaac's there, and Isaac's got a pot of food, pot of stew. Esau says, give me some of that stew. Jacob says, not so fast. Let's see if we can work out a deal here. I'll give you some stew if you give me your inheritance. Esau agreed. All right. It's a deal. Now later, of course, Esau regrets that he has made this deal. And he wants to go back on it and says, man, I didn't mean it. And you know what Jacob says. (laughs) No take backs. And so Jacob becomes the heir the rightful heir. 
And a feud ensues between, as you might imagine, between Esau and Jacob. Now, the feud's not on Jacob's side, but it is on Esau's side. He resents Jacob. Scripture tells us that at one point in Genesis 26, 34, that Esau and his foreign wives made life difficult for Jacob and his wife, Rebekah. It even says in Genesis chapter 27, verse 41, that Esau has plans, every, his every intention is he's going to kill Jacob. Now, years later, what happens is the descendants of Esau, who are the Edomites, acted so cruelly toward the Jews that the Jews welcomed any news of divine judgment on them. Any bad news about the Edomites, they just ate it up. And the book of Obadiah, (laughs) if you're drawing circles and arrows, the book of Obadiah, specifically the 14th verse, but it's a section there. By the way, there's only one chapter in Obadiah. The 14th verse, it speaks about how the Edomites took advantage of the plight of Jerusalem during the attack by the Babylonians. And Obadiah pronounced God's judgment on Edom for this sin that they committed. And Malachi chapter 1 verses 3 and 4 reflects that same judgment. Now what disturbs modern readers is the use of that word hated. Which is used to describe God's attitude toward Esau. And so I want to spend just a brief moment to talk about the love-hate comparison that is used in this passage in Malachi. Because there's some things we need to remind ourselves of. Number one, the real point of these verses is to show that God loved Jacob. That's the focal point of the verse. The words about Esau that are used here are used only in the context of the evidence of God's love. Number two, God's original choice of Jacob instead of Esau had to do with which of the two would inherit the promises made to Abraham and Isaac. The point of the verse is to point out not so much to the two individuals, but to the generations to follow who would inherit the promises. The choice was made by a sovereign God to work through the children of Israel, which is Jacob's new name, who would be his representatives. It's not referring to being chosen for salvation. Number three, personal animosity is not implied. In the Tyndall Old Testament commentaries, J.G. Baldwin wrote this, and I want to share it with you. The very fact that Jacob was chosen, loved, meant that Esau was rejected, hated. Rejection being implicit in the exercise of choice. Personal animosity toward Esau is not implied. By nursing resentment and showing hostility toward Jacob... Esau and his descendants brought judgment on themselves. And verses 3 and 4 describe that judgment on Edom. And let's look at it again. 
Verse 3 says, I turned his mountains into wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. Though Edom says, we have been devastated, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord, the army says this, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called a wicked country and the people the Lord has cursed forever. And God used a group of people called the Nabutians to bring about his judgment on the Edomites. And the destruction of Edom was so thorough that only the desert jackals inherited their ruins. The Edomites wanted to rebuild, but God promised to demolish anything they rebuilt. And his name for Edom is significant. The name for Edom at this point in the scripture is the wicked country. Now compare that to God's name for Israel. In Zechariah chapter 2, verse 12, the promised land is called the Holy Land. And the Lord used the word curse to describe his stance toward the descendants of Esau. And we see that this passage emphasizes the greatness of God and the power of God. The title, The Lord of Armies, in verse 4, is used 24 times. Remember, there's only 55 verses in Malachi. The title, The Lord of Armies, is used 24 times in Malachi, and it stresses his power over all things. Verse 5 reads, The Lord is great even beyond the borders of Israel. Other nations, when they look, at the God of Israel, they looked upon their God the same way they looked upon their gods. They saw gods as being territorial. That Israel's God was powerful, but only within the confines of their territory. Now God has already said, He is the Lord of armies. That describes his power. But look as he speaks about the greatness of God. He declares, I'm not only powerful, I'm powerful in all places, not just one territory. The child's prayer, God is great, God is good, is a theological statement on the God of the Bible. That's an accurate reflection of who God is. God is great. God is good. And renewing our faith begins with renewing our trust in God's love, greatness, and power. Now let's bring it home. 
There are some things that you and I as believers in Christ need to remember, particularly as we think about God's love. Number one, God is a covenant-keeping God. At the Last Supper, Jesus held up the cup and he said, For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1 verses 19 and 20 says this, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that is Christ. And through Christ to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Under the old covenant, it was based upon promises, obedience, disobedience. Obedience brought blessings, disobedience brought curses. In the new covenant, we have the same holy God who hates sin. God didn't stop hating sin. God hates sin. He hates sin today as much as he hated it back in the day. But God said, I'm going to create a new covenant. My son Jesus is going to perfectly obey. He's going to come into the world. He's perfectly going to obey all the law, all the requirements, everything. And then he's going to take your place on the cross and his blood's going to be shed for you. He's going to enter into a covenant with you through his blood. And it is by his blood that we have peace with God today. Through the belief in Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. He's a covenant-keeping God. Secondly, God chastens and disciplines those he loves. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 and 6 says this, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he punishes every son he receives. God chastens or disciplines those he loves. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't spank my neighbor's kids. I discipline my children. And one of the signs that God loves us is that he will get our attention. So rather than us complaining or doubting God's love, what we need to do is we need to rejoice in God's love. And rejoicing in God's love is We need to know that we don't have a doting Heavenly Father. We have a Heavenly Father who's not interested in our happiness, but He's interested in our holiness. And so He disciplines us. He corrects us because He loves us. And then I want you to understand this. God loved us Before we loved him. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says this. Jot it down. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world. So that 
we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he loves us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. 1 John 4.19 says this, we love because he first loved us. We don't go looking for God. He came looking for us. Romans 5, 8 says, But God proves His own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this is the way I connect that for myself. If God loved me when I was a sinner, that is, His enemy, fighting against Him, running the other way from Him. If God loved me while I was a sinner, how much more does God love me now that I'm His child through faith in Jesus? How has God loved us? I'll tell you how. He's loved us in spite of our neglect and our failure. How has God loved us? He loves us just as much on our worst day as He does on our best day. And this morning we're going to remember God's love for us through the observance of the Lord's Supper. Jesus, before his crucifixion, gave a symbol of his love for us through the institution of the Lord's Supper. And as you came in this morning, as Andy shared with you, you received a cup. and Hopefully you have that with you right now. Let me say something about that. Thank you. The cup that Jesus passed around to his disciples was the wine that was drank at that meal. And that particular meal, he took a very common element, something that they were, with which they were familiar, and he gave it a new meaning. He said, this symbolizes my blood, which is shed for you. This is the way that I seal the new covenant that I am making with you, between you and God. It is sealed by my blood. And then he took the bread and as he broke it, he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat this in remembrance of what I am doing for you, dying on the cross, giving my body as a sin sacrifice for you. Now, I don't know which kind you got. If you peel off the top, you might have a wafer there. If you got the one that you peel off the bottom, you got a cracker there. But if you would, take that right now and hold it in your hand and wait just a moment. I want to lead us in a prayer. Father, thank you for this wafer that symbolizes your body. 
that it is by the breaking of your body that the way to peace with God was made possible. Lord, it would be pretty easy for us to chew this up and swallow it down in one gulp, but as we think about it this morning, we remember the terrible beating that you took. We remember the curse words, the abuse that was hurled at you, the people who made fun of you, who doubted you, who even tempted you to save yourself rather than dying. God, remind us as we take this wafer, Jesus, nobody took your life. You gave your life because you love us. Father, thank you for this symbol of your body broken for us. We do honor you and worship you through receiving it now. Take and eat it in remembrance of Jesus. Scripture says, likewise, he took the cup. And he raised it and he blessed it. Father, I thank you for this symbol of your blood that was shed on the cross for my sin. But as the scripture says, not for mine only, but for the sins of the whole world. Thank you that enough blood was shed there on the cross to save any person who will admit They're a sinner. They can't save themselves. But they believe that Jesus took their sin upon himself. That through believing in him, confessing our sin, turning from our sin, and turning to Jesus for salvation, we can have forgiveness through his blood. Lord, thank you for loving us that much to go through that pain. And more than that, even hanging on that cross... The halls of heaven were silent. And in that holy moment of silence, a holy God watched his son take on the sin of the world. And sin was judged as you died on that cross and spilled your blood. Lord, in that holy remembrance, we thank you for the blood that was shed for us. And we drink this now in remembrance of Jesus. Take and drink it. Scripture says that as they dismissed, they dismissed, went out with singing. Can you imagine Jesus? He's just talked about dying. And he's right there among them to lead them in singing over what God has done for them.